Well, we could turn back to the verses we read from 2 Timothy chapter 4. And we'll look together at verses 6 to 8. Perhaps particularly taking as a theme verse 7. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. And I'm sure we're all aware and feeling that we gather at a momentous time for our nation, a time when many are reflecting and mourning the passing of Queen Elizabeth II, and at a time like this when many are thinking of the realities of human mortality, this naturally raises the question, how should we live so that we can die well? How should we live so that we finish our course well? And there's good reason to believe that the Queen knew the answer to that question. But here, Paul, more clearly than any human life can tell us, he unfolds for us how it is that we can finish well. And Paul says, quite simply, if we are to be ready to die, we must fight the good fight, we must finish the race, and we must keep the faith. Now, Paul is telling us these things as his own life is drawing to a close. He's in a Roman prison. He's awaiting his own execution. And he is himself reflective because he knows he is at the end of his days. He reflects throughout to Timothy on the state of the cause of Christ in the world. And the need that Timothy and the church has to endure suffering, to hold on to sound doctrine, all to ensure that the light of the gospel still shines brightly in a needy, lost world once Paul is gone. But here at the very end of the letter, Paul turns to personal reflection. He reflects on his present situation. He reflects on his past experiences. And he reflects on the future that is his. He he sums up his life and his future in these short verses 6 to 8. And the summary of the life well lived that will lead him to die well is for me to live has been Christ, and therefore to die is gain. If we live for Christ, death at the end is ultimately gain. So this morning we'll look at Paul's personal reflections on his own life, these characteristics of his life that enabled him to face death with confidence that enabled him to finish life well. And we'll do that under three headings. We'll see verse 6, Paul's 
present experience. We'll see verse 7, Paul's past life. And we'll see verse 8, Paul's certain future. Paul's present, Paul's past, and Paul's future. First then, Paul's present experience, verse 6. And as Paul is awaiting death, he uses two images to show us how he is feeling about that situation. How he is feeling about the finishing line being so close. The first image he gives us is that of a drink offering. I am already being poured out, he says, as a drink offering. And to understand what Paul is saying there, we have to cast our minds back to the Old Testament. The sacrifices of the Mosaic Covenant, and especially what we see in Numbers chapters 28 and 29. And there we see that drink offerings were required to accompany all the blood sacrifices. As the animal was being slain on the altar, wine would be poured out at the base of the altar. And that is the the drink offering. But what does that represent? What were these drink offerings that happened back in the days of Moses when animals were being sacrificed? And I think we can say two things about these drink offerings. The first is they were tied to the land of promise with their abundant clusters of grapes and wine. When we're told about drink offerings in Leviticus and in Numbers, there's so often this statement, when you enter the land that I am giving you, pour out your drink offering. And so the drink offering is to be in the land of promise. It is offered in a state of victory. When God's enemies have been defeated. When the land is belonging to Israel. The drink offering occurs in the context of victory. But the drink offering also occurs in the context of reconciliation. The sacrifice dealing with sin is and has been offered. And then the drink offering is poured after the blood has been shed. So this drink offering in the days of Moses is tied to victory. Israel is in the land. It's tied to reconciliation. The blood has been shed. The drink offering is an offering of thankfulness for the victory God has won and the reconciliation he has provided. And of course, the drink offering was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the drink offering. He is the ultimate victory of God for us, and he is the ultimate reconciliation. And that is why Jesus says, Luke twenty-two twenty, this cup that is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. Poured out just as the drink offering was poured out. Jesus himself tells us, I am the true drink offering, the true victory, the true reconciliation. 
And so when Paul says at the end of his days, I am being poured out as a drink offering, clearly he's not saying he's been poured out in the same way as Jesus Christ. But what he is saying is that my life and now my death are an offering of thankfulness to God as one whose life is united to Jesus Christ and as one who therefore shares in the victory and reconciliation Jesus has won. Paul is saying, in my death, I am united to the great drink offering, the Lord Jesus Christ. So I face death victorious and reconciled, and I am thankful for that. Now, Paul had thought about this in the past. Back in Philippians 2, he had said, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. But now that the hour has actually come, now that the hour of his death is near, this isn't some hypothetical future thing that Paul might be willing to do for the Philippians. The day has come. And Paul says, I am still ready. In the past, I said I was ready. If I needed to be poured out, I would be glad and rejoice. But now the time has come in this Roman prison and still I am ready because I am victorious and reconciled in Christ. The second image Paul uses to describe his present experience is that of a journey. He says, the time of my departure has come. He's awaiting death, but he knows that isn't the end. It isn't some full stop at the end of his life. Rather, it's a departing. It's a going on a journey to an ultimate desired destination. And the word translated departure here carries with it the idea of a ship being loosed from its moorings. And because of that nautical connection, I, I can't help but think that Paul is Psalm 107 in his mind. There the psalmist talks about those who go down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They depart, they do what they have to do, and then at last, they are glad that the waters were quiet. He brought them to their desired haven. And so Paul here, this isn't the end. He is departing, journeying to his desired haven. And that haven is Christ and heaven. As Paul says again in Philippians, my desire is to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. As the well-known hymn of Vernon Hyam says, our God is the end of the journey his pleasant and glorious domain. So Paul's present circumstances, he's facing death, but he's not downcast. He knows that his death is simply a translation to eternal joy with his Savior. He knows that he is to be poured out as a drink offering because Christ was first poured out for him Christ has reconciled him to God, won the victory, dealt with sin, 
won the victory over the last enemy. So Paul's present is hope-filled, even as he faces death. Then Paul moves on from his present to reflect on his past life in verse 7. And so our second point, Paul's past life. And you'll probably know the statement attributed to Wesley, where he said of the Methodists, our people die well. And Wesley said the Methodists, the early Methodists, died well because they lived well. And if that was true of them, it is super abundantly true of the Apostle Paul. Paul can have present hope. Yes, because he is in Christ. But also because of how he has lived. And Paul gives us three images as he reflects on his past life which help explain how he can be so hope-filled as he faces death. The first image Paul gives us is of a fight. He says, I have fought the good fight. And I wonder how often we think of our lives as a battle. Perhaps in times of stress. Perhaps when things seem to be against us. But not so for Paul. His whole life had been a fight. He lived conscious that the world, the flesh and the devil needed to be fought against every single day. There was no drifting in Paul's past Christian life. Rather, every day was lived conscious that he needed to be wearing the whole armor of God because the evil one was going about like a lion seeking to devour him. Paul fought against sin daily in his own life. Romans 7, I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He fought the fight against sin in him. He fought the fight against Satan. Ephesians 6, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness, the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. He fought for truth in the church. He had gospel shoes on his feet as he went on his missionary journeys, suffering persecution and loss for the sake of the gospel. He wielded the sword of the Spirit, And lived out what he himself told Timothy to do. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Paul's whole life was a fighting life. He said to the Corinthians, I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. Intentional, deliberate fighting and fighting well. Paul did not allow his guard to slip. He told Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, 
Timothy, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life. And here is Paul at the end of his days looking back and saying, Timothy, I have done as I asked you to do. Now it's important to note that Paul is not fighting in his own strength. Moses said back in Exodus 15, the Lord is a man of war. And the man of war is Jesus Christ himself. Jesus is the one, Revelation 6, who goes out conquering and to conquer. Jesus Christ is the one who, Colossians 2, has disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Jesus is the strong man who has bound the devil. So Paul is saying, I have fought, but not in his own strength. He is more than a conqueror, Romans 8, through him who loved us. So Paul's life has been a fighting life. Paul's life has also been a running life. His next image is from athletics. I have finished the race, he says. And what Paul means is, I have done the work the Lord has given me to do. The path he marked out for my life is the one that I have run down. And now I have reached the end, the finish post. And for Paul, this finishing the race didn't just happen by accident. He had this goal of finishing constantly before him all his days. What did he say to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20? My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given to me. And with that goal before him, Paul dedicated his life to pressing on, to doing the Lord's work, to living for God's glory, to finishing well. 1 Corinthians 9, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize. So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Paul is saying, knowing the end I was striving for, I have exercised self-control that I might run the race. Anything that would hinder me, anything that would keep me back has been put away because my eye all my days has been on that finishing line, that imperishable wreath. And so I have run and now I am finishing. But again, this isn't something that Paul is saying he has done in himself and in his own strength. Isaiah 40 who is it that can run the race? They who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. The strength to run is not in us, but in our Lord as we wait on him. And even more clearly in the New Testament, we are told we run in the strength of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 12 let us lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely. 
and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. We can only run in a way that we will finish if our eyes are fixed on the Lord Jesus Christ because only his grace and his strength enable us to run. And Paul's final image as he reflects back on his life is I have kept the faith. And here he goes back to a military image he began with fighting. But this one is more defensive rather than offensive. The idea of keeping the faith is of a soldier guarding his post when it's under attack. And what Paul is defending here, again, is the faith, not his personal subjective experience, not his personal trust in Jesus, but the objective good news of the gospel, the, the doctrines of scripture that cohere in Christ Jesus. It is that that Paul is keeping and defending. Paul said to Timothy, 2 Timothy 1, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. And again, Paul is saying, I am doing, I have done what I am asking others to do. Timothy, I'm saying to you, guard the faith, and I myself have done it. And if you run through Paul's life, the number of ways he has kept and guarded the faith is almost innumerable. He had to guard it against those in the churches of Galatia who were saying, we are saved by something other or in addition to the righteousness of Christ. He had to guard the faith against sexual sin in Corinth. He had to guard the faith against those in Corinth who were denying the resurrection. And even here at the end of his days in 2 Timothy, Paul is still guarding the faith. 2 Timothy 2. Hymenaeus and Philetus who have swerved from the truth saying the resurrection has already happened. Paul's whole life as a gospel minister has been keeping the faith. And Paul did all that willingly knowing that was God's calling on his life. Because what did Paul say in Philippians 1? I am put here. Why are you put here, Paul? I am put here for the defense of the gospel. And again, in this keeping, defending the faith, Paul is simply entering into the work primarily secured and done by Jesus Christ. Paul can defend the church. He can keep the faith because Jesus Christ has promised that he himself will do it. Because what did Jesus say in Matthew 16? I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Paul can keep and defend the faith because the great defender of faith is Jesus Christ himself. Well, what a way to sum up a life. In Christ, fighting the good fight, running the race to the end, guarding the gospel. 
Now, we need to be very clear. Paul is not boasting in himself at the end of his days. He's not forgetting what he has said. God forbid if I glory in anything save the cross of Christ. He's not saying, look at me, look at my works, look at my life. Rather, what he is simply saying is this. As I reached the end of my days, for me to live has been Christ. Christ fought and won the victory. Christ ran and finished. Christ kept and keeps the faith. And my life is united to the Lord Jesus Christ. I owe him everything. And as I am united to his saving death, so I am united to his life-giving life. And all these things are simply reflections that for me to live has been Christ. But you might think, well, that's all well and good, Paul. It's fine for you to face death with this hope-filled confidence of being a drink offering and departing to your desired haven. But Paul, I, I, I haven't run well. I'm not fighting hard and my guard is down. Where's the encouragement for me in, in all of this? Well, the encouragement is that the same Lord Jesus who enabled Paul to fight, to run, and to keep is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that Jesus who gave his strength to Paul says to everyone here, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will take the burdens from you that you might be able to run. I will restore you and refresh you that you once again can fight. And if you are worried as to how many years you have lost, sitting down, defenseless, not going on, then listen to the words of Joel. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. So if you are here and aren't fighting, aren't running, aren't keeping, don't let that discourage you and keep you from the Lord Jesus Christ. Rather, use that as a motivation to go again to the Saviour and to find in him everything you need to go on going on. So that's Paul's past life. We've seen his present, we've seen his past, now his future, verse 8. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. Paul's future is not death. It is to receive from his Lord and Saviour a crown of righteousness. Now, it is a great truth that we must all appear 
before the judgment seat of Christ. But for Paul and for the believer, that truth holds no fear. We appear before the judgment seat. We appear before Jesus Christ as those who are clothed in his righteousness. We stand before the judgment seat washed in his blood, gazing on the one who loved us and who gave himself for us, gazing on the one who himself is the propitiation for our sins and our advocate with the Father. Before the judge, for his people, there is no condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Rather, there is public vindication. There is public pronouncement and adjudication of what is already true. Paul is already righteous in Christ, as righteous as he will ever be. You'll know Paul's famous statement in Philippians 3. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul has no self-righteousness. But here on that day of judgment, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. Not the righteousness of his good deeds or his great works, but the crown of the righteousness of the judge himself. The one who alone is perfectly righteous gives his righteousness to us that we might stand on that day of judgment. He gives to us the imperishable wreath of his perfect, spotless, blameless holiness. Paul has that righteousness as he's writing these words. But on the day of judgment, there is the visible public confirmation of that as the crown of righteousness is placed on his head. What a scene, what a day, what a future awaited the Apostle Paul. And that future is ours by faith. The crown of righteousness isn't there just for Paul, but to all who have loved his appearing. All who love Jesus Christ. All who long for his return. Will have that same crown placed upon their heads. And brothers and sisters, I hope we do long for the appearing of Jesus Christ. The yes, Jesus is with us this morning. We trust by his word and by his spirit. But not in the fullness of presence that we will know on that day when he returns and when sin is no more. And so because we love him, we long to be with him fully. We long for our true home. We know that here we have no continuing city, but we seek one that is to come. And as those who do love that, what a day is coming for all of us. So, do we love Jesus as our Savior? Do we long for his return? 
Well, what a day it will be either when we go to be with him or when he returns. For on that day, all sin and sorrow and trial will be no more. And just like Paul, we will receive that crown of righteousness from the hands of one we love and who loves us more than we can know. And because that day is coming, what reason we have to fight, to run, to guard the faith, that we might be ready to be poured out as a drink offering and to depart and forever be with the Lord. Amen.